This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Thank you guys so much. That was uh, so perfect for where we are headed today and where we're headed in in 1 Peter. So today we're beginning a a brand new series uh, that's going to kind of take us through May and through the summer. We'll have a new series in September, but for the next few months, we're going to be in in the letter of 1 Peter. And I've entitled this series, Living Hope, because each Sunday, what we're going to see in First Peter is sort of a different aspect of how we can live out the hope that is ours in Christ. And that song that we just heard sung so beautifully is so perfect for today because it presents the resurrection of Christ, which we just celebrated at Easter, as the ground of our hope in Christ. Living hope. Let's take a look at the first five verses of 1 Peter today. We're going to talk about hope because of God's plan. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to kind of introduce the the book and the series today, and we're going to look at the first five verses which really tell us about the plan of God for our lives all the way from eternity past into eternity future. Hope because of God's plan. So I'm going to invite you uh, just to, to find uh, the beginning of 1 Peter and uh, make a mark there because we're going to be in it uh, over the next few months and walking through this incredibly rich epistle together. 1 Peter 1, and let's just look at the first five verses of 1 Peter 1 this morning. It's written by Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all areas that would be like modern-day Turkey, okay? Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together. Father, we commit this series to you. We thank you for the book of 1 Peter. Lord, we we thank you for the incredible hope that we find in in these chapters and that we're going to see Sunday after Sunday the, the truth that enables our hearts just to to rise with hope even in the midst of trials 
in the midst of pain. Father, I, I know that there are, there are those who are sitting here today that are walking through a time of pain and suffering, maybe even a, a time of crisis in their lives, Lord, and they've, they've come in need of a word of hope. And Lord, I, I pray that you would give us the grace to see that, that you have provided that through Jesus, through his death for sinners like us and the, the new life, the eternal life, the forgiveness of sin that is provided through that and through his resurrection. And so Lord, help us to see that whatever trials that we may be walking through today, that they are trivial compared to the overwhelming truth and reality that Jesus is risen and that we belong to him, and that he has a plan, a comprehensive plan that stretches from eternity past and into eternity future, and that you've got us as believers. You've got us covered all the way through. And so, Lord, would you just, just encourage today and impart hope and faith and love by the power of your spirit through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are certain moments where if, if, you, if you watch sports at all, you, you always remember kind of where you were and what you were doing when you, when you saw it. And I know for, for me, one of those moments is gonna be in, in the University of Virginia's Final Four game against Auburn when it just looked like they were absolutely out and there was no time left on the clock and one of UVA's players, Kyle Guy, uh, had, there's no time remaining on the clock, and they're behind by two points, and he has three free throws. He can make two to tie and three to win, and I'm just thinking, I can't imagine the pressure that this guy is under, and especially with all they went through last year, and he steps up to the free throw line, and he he confidently just puts all three of them through. The other team called a timeout in the middle of all that just to freeze him and just to kind of make the pressure ratchet up all the more, but it didn't matter. He just stepped up and, and confidently stroked all three to enable them to, to win the game. Well, things did not go like that for a guy named Scott Norwood. Scott Norwood was a kicker for the Buffalo Bills and in the 1991 Super Bowl, time was virtually exhausted, and it all came down to one kick. And if Scott Norwood made the kick, then Buffalo would win the Super Bowl. If he missed, they would lose the Super Bowl. It all came down to him, and he, he narrowly missed. And they lost the Super Bowl. A few days later, when, when Buffalo returned uh, home, they were surprised because their fans held a rally for them. <laughs> Even though they had lost the Super Bowl, their diehard fans, 30,000 of them, held this, this rally for the, for the Bills out in kind of a central area of, of Buffalo. Well, Scott Norwood had not even wanted to go to the rally. He felt humiliated. He felt like he had just blown it. Um, but he, he, his teammates coaxed him to go. And to his shock, he heard the fans chanting his name in support. And he was able to step up to the mic and, and speak. And he said, you know, I've never felt more loved in all of my life than I do right now. 
He felt as if he had blown it, but yet he had been forgiven, restored. Well, Peter had blown it in an infinitely greater way. In fact, you can argue Scott Norwood didn't really blow it. It's, a, it's just a, 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 a game, and he failed to execute a, a field goal. But, but Peter, in the, the, the hour of Jesus' greatest need, in his, in his darkest night, the night before the cross, Peter had denied three times that he even knew Jesus. One of his closest friends denying three times that he even knew him and playing the coward. But after the resurrection, Jesus came and he forgave and he restored Peter and there's that incredible scene that took place on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, the place where Jesus and Peter had first met. And you remember and that Jesus comes to, to, to Peter and, and uh, Wilson and Miguel did a great job on Palm Sunday evening just kind of portraying that, that conversation. But Jesus comes to, to Peter and you remember what he said to him three times. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And so that's what Peter devoted the rest of his life to doing. And that's what he's doing in this letter. He's feeding the sheep, not just the sheep in the first century, but he's, he's feeding these sheep all the way down through the, the centuries. So let's fast forward. It's, it's now 30 years after the resurrection of Christ, about 62 or 63 A.D., and Peter is ministering in the, in the city of Rome but he's heard about these believers that are suffering in what would now be the modern nation of Turkey. And so he writes this letter, the letter of 1 Peter, to encourage them. He knows that they're hurting. And he writes this letter to give them hope. And so hope is the overarching theme of the book of First Peter. And every Sunday, we're going to kind of twist that diamond under the light and look at a different aspect of our hope in Christ. Now, one of the things that we really need for our hope in Christ to rise is that we need to understand that in the middle of our trials, that God has a plan. We need to understand that our trials, our sufferings, our pain is not meaningless. It's not random. We need to understand that, that God's got us and that he knows what he's doing and that he's got a plan. And what we're going to see in these opening verses of 1 Peter is that, wow, does he have a plan. <laughs> he's got a plan for, that stretches from eternity past into eternity future. What we're going to see today is that when it, as believers, when it comes to our past, our present, and our future, God's got us covered. He's got us covered all the way. So what do we see here in these first five verses? First of all, our past, chosen and born anew. 
what Peter wants us to understand here is that when it comes to our past as believers, he wants us to understand that we've been chosen and that we've been given a new birth. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful Trinitarian statement that is in verse 2. And verses 1 and 2, chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled with the blood of the Son. And what, Paul, what Peter wants us to understand here is that the, the triune God has us covered. And that, that coverage really began long before we drew our first breath. It began in eternity past. Twice he, he uses the word chosen to describe us as, as believers. You know, one of, the, one of the difficult aspects of growing up can be when you're out on the playground and the captains choose teams. Some of you kind of remember that, that moment. It, it's, uh, it can be a little difficult because the captains are always going to choose the kids who are the most athletic and when that happens, there are going to be some kids that are just kind of, you know, they're just standing there and, and kid after kid is being chosen and they're, they're still kind of standing there. That can be kind of a, kind of a painful time um, in, in growing up. But you know what? Our captain doesn't operate like that. God did not look out on the playground of humanity and choose the swiftest and the strongest or the best and the brightest. In fact, he did not choose us based on our performance at all. In fact, he chose us before we ever even drew our first breath and had done anything right or wrong. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this kind of humorously. Spurgeon says, I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me after I was born. Well, Spurgeon is right. He did choose us before we were born. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 says, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, as we talked about when we went through Romans, and particularly at the end of chapter 8 of Romans and into chapters 9 through 11, when we kind of talked about the doctrine of, of election, we talked about the fact that that doesn't mean that we don't make a, le- a legitimate choice Uh, of Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't, we're called to repent and believe. That's a choice. That's a decision. Okay, and so the fact when the Bible talks about us being chosen, that does not negate the fact that we make a choice. What it does do, though, is that it tells us the order of things. I love what J.A. Metters says about this. He says, election doesn't erase our choosing of Christ. You really did choose him. Election shows the chronology of choice. God chose you before you chose him. 
You freely chose to put your faith in God because God had freely chosen to bring you to faith. We chose second because God chose first. And when you think about it, it has to be this way. (laughs) It has to be this way. Because what is our spiritual condition before we meet Jesus? Ephesians 1 tells us what it is. It says in Ephesians 2, 1, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So what can a spiritual corpse do? Can a spiritual corpse even really make a choice? No, not unless God enables us to do that. And so God has to act first, right? And he gives regeneration to our hearts and enables us to repent and believe. He, he, he has to raise the dead. Our condition is that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Praise God, we have a God who specializes in raising the dead. And so Paul says a few verses later in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. And so salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. It's all about God. It's all about his grace. And the new birth that we, were, that we have in Christ is something that was given to us. That's what Peter is stressing here in, in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has what? Given us new birth. That, that new birth comes to us as a gift. So listen, when we put all this together, what, what are the implications here for, for us? The fact that salvation's all of grace from beginning to end. First of all, it means we have nothing to boast about. We have nothing to boast about. God has designed this so, to, so that it totally excludes human boasting. So we see in, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for you are saved by grace through faith, And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Now Paul is saying here that that even our faith, even our faith is the gift of God. And so, you know, we we can never say, well, you know what? I'm saved because, uh, because I, you know, I was more spiritually wise and, 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 and I was smarter or you know, I was just more spiritually and intuitive and, and I, made, I made the right choices you know, I, you know, and kind of brag about our faith. No, no, even our faith was given to us. It came to us as a gift. So we have no grounds, no grounds whatsoever for any boasting. So we have nothing to boast about. Second, we have nothing to worry about. <laughs> we have nothing to worry about. Listen, if, if ultimately our salvation came down to us, if it came down to us to get ourselves saved, then the implication would be that we could get ourselves unsaved. But see, it's God who saves And he saves us by grace. And listen, brothers and sisters, he keeps us by grace. So you see, Jesus 
saying things like this in John 6, 37. Jesus says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me. There's election. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. There's the perseverance of the saints. There's eternal security. Jesus says that that I will never cast my true sheep out. And so, listen, you are in Christ today because all because of God. He chose you before the foundation of the world. At a certain point in time in your life, you heard the gospel, and, and by the power of his spirit, he, he opened your blind eyes. He raised you spiritually from the dead, and he enabled you to repent and believe. And, and now his spirit is doing a work of sanctification in your life that's going to carry through all the way to your ultimate glorification. He's had you covered. He's got you covered. He will have you covered all the way, all the way through. He's not going to let go of you now because it's all about him. It's all about grace. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out, Jesus says. So our past in Christ is that we're chosen and born anew. Let's talk about our present. Let's talk about life right now. What is, what is present reality for believers? Well, we are exiles with a living hope. We are exiles with a living hope. So let's look at verse 1 Again, notice that he calls us exiles. He says he's writing to exiles. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles. And the exiles is not just those people in the first century. The word exiles, it refers to believers throughout all the centuries. This is who we are. Exiles is a key word for understanding First Peter. So the Greek word here, you could translate it not only as exiles, you could translate it as aliens. You could translate it as sojourners, as pilgrims, as strangers. One time, I, I flew into a, a country in North Africa, and I was going to go visit some, some gospel workers in this country and so I, I fly in, and, you know, I was told somebody was, one of them was going to be there to, to meet me at the airport. And, and they weren't there, but, you know, there had been a tailwind coming across the Atlantic, and I knew I was there early, so it really didn't, didn't worry at first. But then hours began to go by, <laughs> and there was nobody there, and nobody around me speaks my language. And I can't, this is the days before smartphones, I didn't even bring a phone, um, and so, and I can't, I can't tell a single soul, even if I could speak the language. I was in a situation where I could not tell anyone why I was there, and most importantly, I couldn't tell them who I was supposed to meet there. So I'm like, stuck. <laughs> There's nothing. There's nothing that I can do. And I want to tell you, I never felt so far from home <laughs> as I did in those, in those hours. But you know what? Reality for all of us as believers is that we are far from home. We are not home. 
We are pilgrims passing through. This, this, this fallen world of sin is not home for us. It's not. And so we are exiles. So part of what's happening in 1 Peter, you can think of the book of 1 Peter as like a travel guide for exiles. <laughs> Peter's saying, this is, how, this is how you do life when you're far from home. This is how you do life as a pilgrim, as a sojourner, as an alien in a land that is not your own. That's, that's reality for us, right? We, we, are, we are exiles. But we're not just exiles. We are exiles with a living hope. So that's what he tells us about in verse, in verse three. Look at verse three again. He says, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So because Jesus lives, we can have a living hope. Because the tomb is empty, the well of our hope is not empty. I love what Edmund Clowney says about this. He says, our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives. Our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming. And see, what that does is that it puts the trials of our lives in this fallen world in perspective. Because we know that whatever trials we go through in this life, first of all, they're temporary. Very temporary. Very temporary. And we have got forever with, with Christ, right? And so, you know, this brings passages like 2 Corinthians 4.17 really alive for us because we, we know that this, this slight momentary affliction that we're walking through is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It makes passages like Romans 8.18 come to life where Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with what? With the glory that awaits us. And so one of the things that we're going to see in 1 Peter is that our trials, the painful things that we can go through in this life are put into perspective because in comparison with, this, with what awaits us, with what has been ensured and accomplished, because Christ is risen and coming again, like it, it, it puts into perspective the, the difficulties that we walk through in this life because we've got this incredible future and this, this hope and hope biblically does not mean sort of eh, something that may happen or may not happen. No, when the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about certainty. This is certain for the believer. Our future is secured, 
certain. That's the next thing that we see. Our future, a glorious inheritance. A glorious inheritance. Let's check out verses four and five. <clears throat> he says, <clears throat> he's given us new birth into a living, living hope and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. There's our hope. There's our future, right? So what enables us to make it through the trials of this life without losing hope is knowing the glory that awaits us. It's knowing that our inheritance, listen, it's right around the corner. <laughs> it's right around the corner. This life is so brief for all of us, but our inheritance is forever. And it's right around the corner. It's not far. And Peter says of our inheritance that, verse 4, it's imperishable, which means it's not going to spoil. It's undefiled, which means nothing can mess it up. And it's unfading. Nothing can, can take it away. And then he says that it's what? It's kept. Kept. Secured in heaven for you. And listen, not only that, not only is our inheritance being kept for us, but God is, but we are kept for our inheritance. I'll say that again. Not only is our inheritance kept for us, but we are kept for our inheritance. Because what does he say about us in verse five? He says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That word guarded means to be kept in protective custody. <laughs> and so <clears throat> Peter's not saying here that we're guarded from trials. It's not that. But he's saying that even as we go through trials, that our faith is being guarded, that God is going to enable us by his grace to persevere in our faith to the very end. And, and, and therefore, he says, you're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. <clears throat> you say, wait a second, Pastor, I thought like I already have salvation. Well, you do already have salvation if you're a Christian. Okay, so we, we, are, we are saved, but yet Peter here is saying that there, there's, a, there's a final salvation that is out there for all of us. And what he's talking about is when Christ comes again. <clears throat> when Jesus comes again, and we are raised with glorified bodies to live in a new heaven and earth. That's, that's like the climax. That's the completion of our salvation. That's what he's talking about here in verse 5. And listen, for the believer, that is as certain as if it's already happened. 
the atheist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre once wrote an incredibly bleak play called No Exit. And in this play, uh, Sartre pictures three people, a man and two women, that are, that are doomed to hell, but, but they, they, they think that they can escape the torment of hell <clears throat> by going into this room where they can just sort of remain in kind of a limbo forever without sleep and without eyelids. But what they discover is that in that room, all of their secrets are just wrung out of them. And so the, the guy who had pretended to be a great hero is exposed as a fraud who died in a train wreck after betraying his friends. And, and the two women have also uh, lived, uh, lived un, unvirtuous lives. And in, and in, the, and in, and in this, this room, all of it, all of it comes out. All of it is wrung out of them. Nothing is hidden and nothing can be changed. And it all climaxes with this, with this line from Sartre in his atheistic worldview. He says, you are your life and nothing more. Nothing more. You are your life and nothing more. That's it. No hope. Praise God. We have hope because of his life. Because of his life. Because Jesus lives. And because he lives, our hearts can surge with joyful expectation and hope because when it comes to your past, your present, and your future, God's got you covered. He's got you covered all the way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the incredible hope that is ours in Christ. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to live out of that. Lord, to understand that it's all by grace and that as we're gonna sing in just a moment, all we have is Christ. Christ and his resurrection is the, the ground of our hope. But because we have him, because he lives, oh, there's every reason for our hearts to surge with hope, even in the midst of trials. Lord, I pray for people here today that are going through trials. Father, I pray that they would see that, that what you have secured for us in Christ just trumps everything, everything else, everything is trivial compared to the glory that has been won for us and that is waiting for us, all because of our Savior. As we just continue to reflect before the Lord, listen, I would ask you today, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Do you understand his great love? Do you know that he died for sinners like you and me? 
so that we can be forgiven, so that we can have new life. Do you understand that he rose? He really rose. And that death has been defeated for all who will turn to him and trust him. Would you do that today? Would you turn to Jesus? Would you trust him as your Savior and Lord? Would you invite him right now to come into your life, welcome him as your Savior, as your King? Say, Lord, I'm, I am yours. Thank you for your incredible love. Thank you for what you've done. I give my life to you. So, Father, we pray that you would, you would open eyes to see the beauty and glory of Christ and his great love and the salvation that is offered. Lord, help us as believers to, to live in the reality of that hope and to share that hope with a world that desperately needs to hear that message. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.